Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi, Adam Coons, Aaron Uphoff, and David Apple here for Word Fitly 150. It is a conclave of sorts, so I'll take it all in turn and ask everyone how they're doing. Zelwyn, how are you? How is the weather? Doing great, Willie. Things are going very well, and I the weather is actually kind of cold and rainy today. So, winter so you're is happy. You're in your happy place. It's true. It is true. Adam, the prayer, the the Indiana Prairie. Just go ahead and give my weather update too while you're at it. Yeah, well, it's uh, cold and clear, sunny. Not my fave, but better than rain. There we go. Hey, Aaron. It is cool and gray here. We had a big rain the other day, and one of the local towns is flooded out. Okay. And your prayers for seasonable weather were not heard. <laughs> Duly noted. And and David. Uh, things are, are good in Paducah. Fall is sort of here. Um, I think we're supposed to get into the 80s again this week, but... Um, we had to switch over the we had to switch over the church system from cooling to heating. Um, so that is the real sign that fall is here. Sunny, sunny and 60 today. Gotcha. Well, the weather is pretty much uh, Adam and Aaron's uh, here in my part of Illinois, uh, although I won't give a full update, but my weather announcements could change soon in the near future. So stay tuned for that one. All right, guys. Well, great to have you all on here. It is our 150th episode, the big Word Fitly 150 celebration. Uh, so we are going to take some of your questions here, but we also want to talk about Word Fitly, uh, what we are and how we got here. So, Zellin, why don't you tell the folks at home a little bit about Word, the genesis of Word Fitly? Well, if I remember correctly, it started in a restaurant, didn't it? Guys, you need to remind me if my memory is is blank here, but we came up with the idea to have this podcast and to talk about some various things. Oh, what would that be? Five years ago, I want to say. I mean, it's hard to believe that it's been going this long, but it just kind of evolved into what it is today. I mean, we've been going solid for 150 episodes and we'll see how many more we end up doing. I don't even remember half of what we've talked about. So that's I, fun. I barely remember the first episode. I mean, and that was the one that I think we had the most difficulty with. But it was right, we didn't know what we were doing. I was recording into a potato. Uh, <laughs> still good content, though. And and the five guys here. I mean, these this is the original. Unless I'm mistaken, this is the original Word Fitly ensemble. This is the original crew, the OG, including so, A. A. Ron. So. Yes. Hello. Yeah, believe it or not, AA Ron is a founding member. A lot of people don't know that, but he, he didn't get internet until 2020. So we got him on there. Still doesn't have it, actually. So, so. We're not really yeah. sure how he's chiming in here, but, but putting he the here. silent and silent partner. Yeah. Right. <laughs> when do you, when do you when did we become self aware? I think it was probably around episode uh, thirty or so. I mean, Aaron programmed the thing. And uh, then it just kind of took off. And now now we are fully self to be doing this episode. We're uh, we're engaged in some serious kind of uh, self-reflection here. Right. Well, you know, the world's changed and uh, whatever. Uh, it's going to keep changing. It's going to and word fitly is just going to keep getting spicier. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. We're, we're we're towing the line here. No, we're towing the line. We holding the line. What's the right idiom? I don't know. But we're doing something here at word fitly. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys want to chime in with some of the 
the history here or what do you want to do or talk about I, your reflections? I think, I think we thought we were going to write more, but then it turned out to be yeah. more fun yeah, to the, talk yeah, yeah, to the each great, other. The, the great so. shame, the great, the dark <laughs> secret of Word Fitly is that it started as a blog, whatever that is. <laughs> Disgusting yeah. 2009 facts. Yeah, yeah, yeah like uh, it was yeah. a Zanga. And <laughs> so. Yeah, we, well, we actually started out on LiveJournal because that's how old we are. And then, <laughs> right. Kind of went and off then, from there, right? And then now we just get all of our takes from from eight chan. So you know we evolve. It it is yeah. So we went with a podcast <laughs> as as everyone else does because um, it's not you know every good church has a mortgage. Every minister has to have a podcast now. I think, and so um, certain kind of tricks at play, I suppose. Uh, yeah. So it ended up being a podcast, and uh, and now here we are, um, and we're going to keep going, Lord willing. And we'll we'll see where we go from here. A lot of good episodes uh, coming up. It's been great getting to hear from the audience what they like to hear. Uh, great to see the kind of people that are listening to our podcast. We love we love Word Fitly Nation. So keep uh, keep on keeping on. And we also love uh, when uh, people don't like the podcast too because it's pretty funny. You know when we get our detractors as well. There's too much giggling. There's too. <laughs> you can't be laughing on a podcast. <laughs> Serbs, what are you going to do? Um, <laughs> yeah, so we, we love our we love our detractors and we love our fans. So keep it up, and we of course want to uh, remind you that this podcast is made by not made by, but mostly made for Anons. Anons, keep keep up the good work out there. We appreciate all that you're doing. Word Fitly does not officially uh, sponsor Troll Farms, though. Just just for the record. So anyway, um, yeah. So so here we are, Word Fitly has a reputation for focusing on obscure Lutheran history, believe it or not. That's, uh, and we've got more of that coming, I believe, right, Adam? We've got some, some stuff to pull out. Yeah, we have some, uh, some odd theories about things, and uh, we have some <laughs> more figures that deserve to be better known and, and events that deserve to be better understood. So uh, we'll be coming back to that in addition to some American Christianity stuff. Yeah, I mean, Word Fitly is kind of a high strangeness podcast, and we want to keep it that way. Eventually, we're going to get Aaron back on. I don't know what he's going to talk about, but we're going to get him back, right? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, David is continuing to spearhead Revelation. We'll probably finish Revelation sometime within the year, so that will be fun. Or the events of Revelation will unfold, and we won't get to finish it either way. Now, be honest, though, we're going to be at Revelation for probably, what, the next five years or so? Well, we'll see. You know, it's not Jude or anything. here. <laughs> I think we'll finish it. We'll finish it this year. You think so? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's really just, I don't know if the listeners have picked up on this, but the Revelation series is really just an enactment of what it's like to be in an average midweek Bible class. Right. Um, at a church where it just goes on for three years for no particular right. So I feel seen. Well, it started, and it's about the end times, so yeah, that's what yeah, people like. With, with very few questions, you know. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, everybody just staring at you like hoot owls. But we, hey, we started, and so it must be finished. <laughs> it must be finished. We can never yep, put it right. down. That's right. You might take a break for Advent to do your canned CPH study. I think they're, well, I think they're looking at a Donna Pyle Bible study after Revelation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. 
getting too real in here. It's getting too real. This is this is see when we free bant, that's when we get in trouble. Whatever would I do? Whatever would I do without uh, exorbitant shipping and uh, chocolate life things? I don't know. This is also incidentally why we can never go have word fitly live because it would just end in disaster. You guys have no idea what we cut. <laughs> you have no idea how much Zellwin censors me is what I'm trying to say. And also the true origin of word fitly spoken. Right. <laughs> the truth is I'm just a carefully crafted product of Zellwin. He has trimmed me uh, content wise. So He's, and Willie is also actually just carefully crafted AI. That's know, right. Indistinguishable from anything else on the internet. So Right. Remember, folks, everybody you talk to on the internet is a bot. <laughs> <laughs> so the internet true. isn't real. I always thought word fitly spoken was a Jesus first fever dream come to life. <laughs> <laughs> well, they don't know what to do with it. We're a pro-evangelism podcast, so... So what can you do? Our younger, our 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 Zoomer listeners will not get that reference, and our I, Boomer listeners, I barely got that. Reference. <laughs> and our Boomer <laughs> listeners will be simultaneously offended and heartened. Like, what is this twenty ten? Yeah, we and our Gen X listeners will continue will continue to share horrible memes. <laughs> I've often. Well, I, I do want to say one more thing. I've often mentioned that I'm the only real Missouri Synod Lutheran clergyman on the uh, Word Fitly podcast. And I think that that contributes to the um, the esoterica and the uh, and the interest in what did, how did you say it, Willie? Sort of strange, strange high, gems from the past. High strangeness. Yeah. yeah, high strangeness. It is because you y'all are interlopers and uh, <laughs> and. I guess I'm just here to uh, to provide some semblance of Missouri Synod credibility, uh, which I'm happy to do. Um, but we must. Well, it's bring... true. It's it's like the Masons. We must be sponsored by a yeah, legacy. Yeah. So if we're going to get in, and you are our legacy, you know, you have taught us the handshake, and you have brought us in. I'm happy to do my part, and I'm happy to um, I'm happy to take off the blinders and uh, and see things uh, from the the vantage point of the outsiders. Well, Zellwin was actually in this dimension and others before the Missouri Senate existed. So <laughs> yeah. I, just to be completely accurate. Right. Yeah. Zellwin is, is noted as a mysterious figure throughout Lutheran history and throughout the history of taxonomy. We don't really know where to put him. <laughs> I've gone by many names. This is just the current one. So. <laughs> right. The question has always been, is Zellwin descended from Noah's family or the other passengers on the ark? <laughs> he was hanging on to the ark. <laughs> he was hanging on to the outside. That uh, Ray Winkle has a has a whole chapter on Zellin in the flood. So pick it <laughs> yeah, up. Does. Make sure you pick he it does. up. And if you can yeah, accept it, Willie is Melchizedek. <laughs> he's, he's just saying that because of the beard <laughs> and the fact that I just assume multiple identities. But that's that's more for credit. <laughs> we should probably get to the questions eventually. We should probably, but who wants to do that? All right. Well, let's go ahead and, ta- and tackle that. Um, so for 150, what we wanted to, to focus on, especially since uh, we've been doing a lot of talk lately. And remember, you've got to listen to the full episode because, uh, you know, sometimes the titles, we don't we do not do a lot of clickbait. So you'll, you'll get actually um, a lot of cultural commentary in uh, within an episode that seems pretty, pretty blasé. So just for the record. So we want to talk about 
the current state of the church today, kind of what to what we think could unfold in the future, uh, what things that the people need to hear, and again, what things people should expect. So the questions are sort of along these lines. So we're we're going to take them uh, mostly in the order they received them. Uh, some we might save for a future conclave. So we'll see here. So the first one, somebody wants to know about the prevalence of Gnostic beliefs uh, among proclaimed Christians. We're not going to go into this in in detail, but we do, as a group, want to caution. Gnosticism, as a historic term, has a specific definition and specific beliefs. And I don't think too many evangelical Christians are out there affirming like the demiurge and things like that. We want to be careful that we aren't using Gnostic as a catch-all for aberrant spiritual practices or attitudes. So, and that's kind of where, what Gnostic has come to believe. It's kind of the new version of Reformed. <laughs> so, so sometimes we'll, Lutherans will say Reformed, and it's and they're not coming after the Westminster Confession like, or the Three Forms of Unity, something like that. They just mean non-Lutheran Protestants, and that's not a very helpful historical definition either. So, to answer the question about you know Gnostic beliefs, you know that's really its own episode. And it probably is true that there are some truly Gnostic attitudes out there, but we just want to be careful with the definition. We would, we would operate with a bit of a a more narrow definition on that. And I think that's something we could probably tackle um, a little bit later, but just be careful not to confuse true Gnosticism with kind of a vague mysticism or a, or or merely a denial of the physical or a de-emphasis of the physical. We would want to be careful kind of along those lines. Anything to add to that guys? I think one thing that should be added to that as well is that whenever we use a word like Gnostic or Reformed or Pietist, because that's my shtick, in that kind of generic kind of way to mean whatever I want it to mean, you end up actually kind of hurting yourself in the process because then you can't really pin it down very effectively and you can't really speak against it very effectively either. Because if you're not being precise in your language, precise about what it is that they exactly believe, rather than this, just this fuzzy generality, you're never really going to be able to speak to the issue. So we need to be precise in our language and not just label everything whatever we want it to be so that we can speak to these problems. All right. Very good. Okay. The next question, a good one. What are good ways to conduct conversations with children concerning concerning uh, biblical sexual ethics and and then um, a related question in regard to gender differences and the roles of men and women, things like that. Well, I think it starts with using a chaste and decent life and all we say and do. <laughs> As opposed that to... That will solve all our problems. I agree. <laughs> right catechism, yes. I mean, so get the right translation, well, folks. If, if, yeah. Kidding, not kidding. I mean, I think that Obviously, you have to talk about things, but uh, it helps if you're not forcing the issue into a certain extreme with the language that you're using to frame it, namely the catechism translation. But yeah, I mean, David is right. That's not going to solve all of our problems. But it is helpful. I mean, unpack that a little bit. Well, I mean, I think about it with teaching kids. If you're going to, you know, especially pastors are pretty good at catechizing their kids at home. And if you're teaching them the catechism from an early age, uh, you know, even as soon as they're able to speak, they're going to learn the words, but they're going to have questions about what something means, especially if it's a word they don't hear mom and dad use. So if you're teaching them the commandments and then the explanation to the commandments, eventually, you know, your four-year-old is going to say, 
what is a was it sexually pure? Is that the word that the eighty six translation? One, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, what does that mean, Dad? Uh, you know, and where you say chaste and decent, then you can kind of fill that in as they get older. Um, I don't know. It seems more prudent to go with the old one there, but uh, it's easy just to get caught up in those little details and then use that as an excuse not to deal with bigger, more important pressing things. I don't know. I like how you're trying to pass yourself off as like, I don't even look at the new, the new catechism. Like, what does it say? I don't even know. Well, I, <laughs> ironically, that is the one I have memorized. So as an adult convert. But. <laughs> All right. Any, any other bits of advice on that one? I think a lot of discussions of um, quote, sexual education are completely unnecessary people intuit many things about life. You don't need to be desperately explicit or clear or intentional about talking about these things incessantly. I think probably it's a lot more important to keep your kids generally just off the internet more than anything else. And uh, somehow the human race propagated itself without sex education, you know, in Lutheran schools or any other kind uh, prior to a certain time period. So They'll, they'll figure it out. You know, it, it, I think that's well said. Um, one of the things, I remember being in an evangelical college where, especially before they got the football team, uh, rules were very strict. And but, but they always were like, yeah, we need to talk about sex all the time because sex has been a big taboo. And But the reality was that's all they talked about. It became a, <laughs> right, yeah. you know, all the professors yeah. talked about it because they thought it was edgy. And so we've got that problem too, where we're borderline crude sometimes in the way that we approach these things. Well, it's like the problem that so many kids didn't know what drugs were except for the D.A.R.E. program. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's fair. Although, you know, Scruff McGruff probably kept us out of some trouble. <laughs> Take a bite out of crime. Love that big fella. Yeah. <laughs> this is a Scruff McGruff respecting podcast. <laughs> Always. But yeah, but I mean, there there is something to be said about. I mean, they just, you know, you they they turn even the Song of Solomon into something more lewd than it needs to be, because everything is so hyper hyper sexualized, even within the church. And this is this is not even talking about you know the mega churches that do these uh, seminars on sex and things like that. This is just run of the mill Christians just wanting to talk about it all the time. Um, that's a that's obsessive behavior, uh, really, and you need to quit it. You know, just. Move on to a different subject. Let kids be kids. Let let them let your daughters wear prairie dresses and your boys go out and dig in the dirt and let them be kids for a little bit. Um, and I, I, yeah, I think Adam, you said it. You said it well. I mean, you know, not advocating completely. Uh, you're not completely like keeping them in the dark, and yet you're not unnecessarily and graphically exposing them to things unintentionally. Uh, so yeah, well said, guys. And I will take this last one very quickly before we go to break. Teaching children about the doctrine of the Trinity. I'm going to take this one uh, just to answer it really quick. Teaching kids the Trinity, here's what you do. You teach them the words that we confess. You know, one God, three persons. One God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. And let them get that into their head. And then read the Bible to them. You don't need to get an apple or an egg or water. Just give them the, the, the words that we use to describe this doctrine, and they'll, they'll get it. Any, any, any more words before we head to break, guys? we got some spicy ones coming up right after the break here on Word Fitly Spoken.
Welcome back, everyone. This is Word Fitly 150. Got the whole OG crew here to talk about your questions here on the conclave. So the conclave has convened. Well, I could have I could have dismounted on that one a little bit more smoothly, but here we are to answer your questions here at Word Fitly. Um, the next one is really rather interesting. A listener wants to know: Do you think a reexamination of church polity and ministerial roles would be worthwhile for American confessional Lutheranism in the future? Yeah, I definitely, I definitely think it would be worthwhile. I don't know if it. Generally, these things don't happen except under some kind of duress, right? So the Tennessee Synod, with which uh, the listeners, if they are loyal Christians, should be familiar, comes out of stress over abuse of authority in the North Carolina Synod. So apart from those circumstances, reexamination probably isn't going to happen. So a lot of it has happened. Honestly, I think if you search enough, you know, micro synods, you are going to come up with almost every right. variant of Christian polity inside something called a Lutheran church in the United States of America. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's important to remember, and I think most people know this, that a certain polity is not going to free you completely from issues and even error. There are going to be abuses of power. Um, and the Tennessee Senate rightly understood that anywhere you have institutions, especially once they become a certain size, no matter how they're organized, uh, you will have abuses of power. Um, they will become merely self-perpetuating. And that was that was the great concern that the Tennessee Senate prophets had. And, and th- there is a, a great danger there. So that we don't want to put all of our trust just in polity, right? Although... It, there is a a very good discussion to be had over what makes a better polity, and, and without talking about biblical prescription, I, I do think it's an interesting discussion. Do certain polities work in in other cultures better than in others? Can a congregational polity work better in a 19th century Lutheran context than in a 21st century? Again, that's a separate question from what's biblically right or whatever, but you know, what works better in certain contexts. It's just like forms of government. Certain forms of government cannot work in certain parts of the world. Well, can you read me the question, the original question again, just to be sure here? Because, I mean, are we talking about polity specifically, or are we talking do, about understanding of the ministry? Because that might you, be a different question. Uh, do, well, it's, it's, it's both. Do you think a reexamination of church polity and ministerial roles would be worthwhile okay. for American confessional Lutheranism? So, the, So polity was part of the original question, but... I think I think the the ministerial role question is that a, I mean is that a question of understanding of the ministry, especially as it's expressed within well, polity, polity and understanding of the ministry will go hand in hand necessarily. You know, if you understand if you have like a Campbellite view where you don't believe in say pastors, but only some lay elder board, boom, that informs your your understanding of the ministry. If you believe in a tiered form of the ministry where you have bishop priest and deacon. Okay. There's polity and, um, and ministry, uh, or ministerial roles hand in hand. You know, our, I mean, keep in mind in the Missouri Synod, bishop is synonymous with pastor and that informs our organization. And then it's a little bit complicated by then what is the role of the voters assembly, which has unquestionably changed since the founding of the Synod. I mean, I mean, broadly, it's it's you know, it just it just is the way it is. I mean, e- and even if you just go look at the major change, which was women voters, it it has changed. 
And by necessity, our expression of what a voters assembly constitutes and decides has changed just based upon that one thing, frankly. You, and if you look at even somebody like uh, Gerberding's polity, which is contemporaneous, I mean, with a certain air of the Missouri Synod, it's rather different from, from ours. But it's not but it's not European, would you say? I mean, you make a good point with the connection between like beliefs and our understanding our, and our and our polity. Because I mean you think of like, for example, around here we have the old apostolic Lutherans, which would be the uh, the Finns, those you know, full blown Lestadians. And since they believe that, you know, the the absolution is something which is done by any Christian and not by the minister in particular, therefore they have a correspondingly low view of the ministry itself. You know, that the ministry becomes something which can just be raised up as needed uh, from a a man within the congregation. So yeah, how we understand these things is going to influence how we view. But to be fair, what, what you describe there is a view that would be common in many of our congregations. Fair. Um, especially a, a view, you know, because they, the, you know, if we believe that the pastors are given the authority and the call to bind and loose, mm-hmm. and that somebody's going to chime in and go, well, the congregation hands them the keys. I don't want to get into that. But what happens is they'll quickly pivot to, yes, but everybody can forgive sins. And then, so we've we've actually been absorbed by a kind of egalitarian view. Now, not explicitly, not on paper. And this is this is the, the big struggle for us is, Missouri Synod on paper versus Missouri Synod in in action. And that's why you have such a broad spectrum across across the Synod. Uh, I mean, you, 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 you have a very low view of the ministry in certain circles. And I don't know how broad that is. And you have a very high and respectful, and I would say right view in many of our congregations too. But you do have a view in some circles that approaches kind of what you described there. And I don't think the problem is because you raise somebody up out of out of out of from among you. That's 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 biblical. But the the problem is, of course, what they mean by that. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Frank, you're on absolution duty now. Here, hold this <laughs> and do that. And and that's a bit of a straw man. I don't know that that's exactly how they would do that, but you know what I mean. Um. So really, what we have is a confusion in the Missouri Synod today. And we have a confusion in broader confessional Lutheranism because there is great division among broader confessional Lutheranism. Confessionalism should unite us, and oftentimes it divides us because of the because of differing interpretations. I think, and we can all broadly agree on certain things, but if we were all in perfect unity, we wouldn't have so many micro synods or so many synods. Period. I think there's also something going on here where uh, you're really you're right, Willie, that understandings of who a minister is and what he's there to do very widely. And that leads to differences in polity, even within the Missouri Synod, where theoretically the constitutions are all effectively uh, the same or have much of the same, let's say, structure. So it's sort of like how, you know, every state is supposed to have a Republican form of government, but, you know, a single party state, even though that's not in a state constitution, California is going to operate vastly differently right. than, you know, North Carolina, where things are more divided. So, for instance, the Voters Assembly is going to exist in the vast majority of Missouri Synod churches, but its functioning is going to vary widely if they remember having Tuesday evening voters meetings and it was like a really serious thing versus it's like a commuter church in some kind of non-Lutheran area. Nobody really cares about this. It's just kind of the 
machinery and effectively the pastor and the church council run the church. That's not really functionally at all in line with what Trinity Soulard, which is the model constitution for Missouri Synod congregations, envisioned. And it, it's it's very different from the degree to which really Walther and many of his generation were, I think, controlled by their churches in a way that we would generally find very strange, not even like yeah. thinkable. So like... Um, you cannot take a call until your church peacefully yeah. releases you. Peacefully releases you. Yeah, it was, it was exactly what I thought when you said that. Um, and now it's technically you're supposed to sort of get one. as a, It's as a nice custom. It's a fare thee well sort of thing. Yeah. yeah, in those days, you could get caught in limbo. Well, I, I've accepted this call. Yeah, we, we've not. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, right. So I think that those kind of those functional differences, and then there are there are some churches, usually very large churches, that are run on policy-based governance, which is not at all a traditional church structure. Um, it's a corporate, it's a, it's a fortune 500 right. structure. So those, those variations do affect who the minister is. That is, even if the theology of the ministry is relatively, let's say low in a given place, the minister might functionally be running a, <laughs> you know, running a show, which is enormous and he's functioning kind of like he needs an MBA to do it. Well, I mean, that was, you know, the big uh, program from a few years back, right? Wanted to turn everybody into an entrepreneur. We've adopted yeah. the, uh, we adopted corporate language. Uh, and, and there, th- that's where the discussion of polity is actually very important um, because, you know, I, I do think that that sort of thing is, is beyond the pale. I mean, I, I don't think you can find anything like that in the scripture. And it's, it's too corporate. It's too worldly. As much as people like to crow about, the democratic spirit in the church. And there are certainly dangers there. Um, you could at least see some form of voting or at least casting lots in the book of acts, for example, or calling people out from among them, that sort of thing. There's some sort of group consensus, but there is uh, there's nothing really, a, there's a, certainly a top down approach, yeah. but not a business model approach. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's far too, far too worldly. No. So, yeah. So yeah, uh, there certainly is, is a place to, uh, to discuss uh, polity um, in the future. And as Adam said, it usually comes as a result of, of great uh, strife within a certain group. Yeah. So uh, any more on that guys? Well, I just, I would just um, maybe point out, like I think all of us sort of instinctually hear that question as being like, should we have bishops or not? Like that's often where the discussion goes on this. Um, but as I'm listening to you guys talk, it's, it would be interesting to know like what, and maybe we could do a whole episode on this. What would the, I mean, yes, those forms and having a tiered clergy is part of the discussion, but there's a lot more substantial things that need to be discussed here that are related to this polity and the function of the minister. I don't know if we could list them out off the top of our heads here, but um, I'd be curious to hear what you guys would say to that. What are the key components that would be part of that discussion about polity? Does that make sense? Yeah. I I think that, I mean, two things about bishops. One is just the the question you just asked, David. I think that that is, for me, one of the major failings of Episcopal small E systems is that there is no, it's not actually biblically connected to those who must give account concerning your souls. 
right? So you have obvious functions of the office of the ministry in the New Testament, and those are not actually remedied by the relatively uncomplicated and clear corporate structure, because that's what it is, that a church with Episcopal polity follows. The other thing, practically, is that many, many, many very good Lutheran churches would have been closed for a very long time if we had an Episcopal polity. So the other right. issue is you're creating a class of people who have mm -hmm. simultaneously no day-to-day -day acquaintance with the needs of the church on the ground, and then two, an interest in pleasing authorities higher than themselves, governmental authorities, ecclesiastical, whatever. You don't want that situation where there is conflict between what the needs of the church are, like staying open, and then on the other hand, what the government wants or something. Yeah. I mean, right. well, and part yeah. of the issue is too, everybody wants bishops until he's not on your side. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then, right. and then it becomes, you know, and, and that's, it, it's very easy for a church body to slip into apostasy. And so before you know it, you're TEC, you're the Episcopal church and yep. you're having, or you're the PCUSA or you know, you're seizing land or whatever. Yeah. So I think the only sane thing is, uh, is, is you, is the tier goes this way from top to bottom, general assembly, Presbytery and session guys, <laughs> and we're all ran by Robert's Rules of Order. It's very great, very clean, very cut well, and dry. I mean, just just looking at uh, like Roman Catholicism around here, I know that the local Roman Catholic Church was closed for a very long time, even though you know other churches in town had had opened. And I think, I mean, like you say, it's because the bishop had said, "No, we're not going to let you do this." But I think maybe what I would like to add to this is that. If we are looking to like an Episcopal structure as a way of solving issues, I think that kind of misses the, the current crisis that we're in because the crisis we're in is not a matter of who's in charge. The crisis that we're in is a matter of holding firm. We are being called in a way that generations have not before us to stand firm against, you know, worldly incursion or incursions that, I mean, just frankly, practically are, are unprecedented within our recent history. And so we don't need to worry about who is, who's calling the shots. We need to worry about, are you going to stand hard when you need to stand hard? Yeah, that's, that's well said. I think the psychological trials of believers in the last days will be something akin to the physical trials of believers in times past. And we need to be ready for that. And, you know, frankly, you know, as you say, it's going to be done at the local level. Um, it's going to be done at the parish level and at the household level. And, you know, it may be that you've got to go back to, to meeting in homes again uh, because they want to shutter your doors. And, you know, frankly, even in the Lutheran church, some people went right along with uh, shutting their doors and things like that. We've got a question that deals a little bit about that coming up later. So I don't want to get entirely into it just now. But, yeah, I mean, what you guys say is, is absolutely great. And what Adam said, you know, if we'd had an Episcopal system, our churches would have been closed due to numbers and finances long ago, but a lot more of our churches would have been closed um, in the recent COVID stuff and really rather arbitrarily closed, you know, uh, you know, it's because of the way the territories work. And so, yeah, it would not have been, wouldn't have been good for our churches. And that's something that we, that we forget to think about that the reason why so many pastors and congregations are, are free to be confessional and faithful. I almost said free to be faithful. Forgive me. Um, <laughs> is, is because I got to pay a nickel every time I say it um, is because of 
their local power. They they can they can stand firm in their confession and in their beliefs, and they can stay open. Um, and nobody can tell them they can. No, nobody in the ecclesial hierarchy can tell them they have to shut down. Right, and and that really is is a blessing uh, that we forget about. So well said, guys. Well, I mean, even even a con- congregational system in general was kind of born out of that same situation, right? This idea that the the Episcopal structure is trying to shut you down, and so we're going to go to you know more independent kind of. Well, thing. ultimately, the revelation or the Re- the Reformation is uh, is a little bit that. <laughs> I mean, Zoan. Also, anything that actually has an Episcopal form of government in the United States is always less hierarchically operative than the exact same church in a different place. So vestries in Episcopalian churches, parish councils in Orthodox and Catholic churches all have a bigger role and have historically their entire existence in the United States than the exact same thing in Greece or England or France. So I think that this this is also part of the alienation, especially of men our age and younger from the United States of America, because they were never taught anything positive about their own nation's history. And so they, they long for things that really are simply untenable and, and totally untraditional in the U S including kissing the rings of prelates, you know, (laughs) right. That is his ecclesiastical supervisor now. Uh, <laughs> on the phone, <laughs> polishing his signet ring and waiting. <laughs> we heard you, sir. <laughs> well, all right, guys. Well, we've got a couple minutes left here. Uh, we're not going to go on into um, into one of the bigger questions until the next segment. I, I think um, just kind of continuing on this church polity question, just for a couple minutes. Just a reminder that no polity, of course, is going to to free. Um, man, the the higher ups do not like what we are talking about here. Uh, no polity is going to um, you know completely save you. It, it takes faithful pastors and faithful members believing that word first and foremost, um, because even churches where, like the Orthodox or even in Catholicism, where the, the the office of bishop is seen as divinely instituted and and it's very powerful. They even recognize the tendency for bishops to become corrupt, yeah. and so that they at least they understand that they're they're not living under any kind of illusion that there won't be trials uh, for for the faithful and even for the church uh, because of that. I think the temptation, like you to. Piggyback off of what you're saying is just for how things are messed up in various ways now to just have this abstract idea. Well, if only we could do X, Y, or Z, then these problems would straighten themselves out. And it's very easy to to daydream about that for a lot of things. You know, I mean, I think we're all divine service three enjoyers here, but you know, it's a fool's errand to think. Well, if we just get only that service then, you know, people will start to have everything right in their mind and their worship and life, which isn't to run it down. It's just to kind of take this abstract thing in your mind and think if we could apply it perfectly, then all our problems will sort out. If we just use the old catechism, there would be no problems. (laughs) (laughs) Put on the poncho, use the old catechism. (laughs) See, we don't believe in ex opere operato at all, guys. All right, we're up on our next break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly 150 after this.
Welcome back, everyone. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. The Conclave is here for our 150th episode to answer your questions. All right, very good discussion about polity. It was actually the entirety of the last segment, so that was fun. Uh, so we'll see how far we can get into the listener questions here. Very good question here. Can a Christian in good conscience practice mild forms of civil disobedience if a government begins to overstep its authority? And, of course, we were all thinking of the immediate context here and uh, the shutdowns and various mandates in certain states. And maybe there are other examples we can talk about here of the church disobeying or, or perhaps where a church may have to disobey in the future. Guys, who wants to chime in? Oh, we do want to mention before we begin, you will not be hearing from David in this segment. Um, he ran out of AOL discs. He will not be here for the <laughs> remainder of that. So David is fine. His internet uh, has just uh, ran out. So I thought we'll, he was uh, sucked into the internet like Tron or something like that. That's right. Uh, so something, but he, Someone but he is safe. Adam. He he has called us collect to let him know to let us know that he is safe. So no no need to send out a golden alert for David. All right, guys, let's talk a little bit about Christian civil disobedience. Well, I think of, uh, I mean, you know, I'm for one very uh, glad that Moses's mother uh, put him in a basket. I'm sure the Israelites were Moses and the Egyptian midwives that uh, did their best uh, not to follow the edicts of Pharaoh in uh, helping the Israeli boys, Israelite boys to be born. Um, And I'm sure there's better examples even than that, but. The answer is quite obviously yes. Uh, we're not. We don't owe absolute fealty to the authorities, uh. right? Um, the general line is probably going to be that well, only when it compromises the faith can we disobey, or when we're when we're compelled to um, what, what? How do we usually put it? Violate the moral law, violate God's law, or something like that. And, then, and everybody would would every Christian would agree. You would hope, unless you're John Piper or something, that <laughs> uh, there would be a time where you would need to. To disobey the uh, the tricky part is you know who decides and what who decides when God's law is being broken you know who decides when it's okay to burden a conscience who decides what is essential and necessary for the church I mean I I think that part of the presupposition behind the the question is is usually off because it presumes that government is sort of your dad that God ordained government to be kind of your dad. And rather than punishing wickedness and rewarding goodness, it's there to basically tell you what to do. So the things that you need to think about with your dad are, you know, I don't want to stack firewood with my dad right now, but it doesn't violate God's moral law for me to do so. So I guess I'll go stack firewood with my dad right now. And that, so that presupposition and it gives us completely uh, inadequate answers to these questions because it's presumed that we're sort of children. And so government does need to tell us what to do. And then we're waiting for some really specific set of circumstances yeah. where like the governor of whatever state says, you may not teach justification by faith alone, <laughs> you know, right. Okay. And then you're like, no, I'm a Lutheran. I shall teach justification. (laughs) You're waiting for a circumstance that will never realistically happen in the United States. Just legally, they're not going to say it that way. Right. They're going to have some more clever way to silence a church. Yeah, exactly. And and they found it. They found it. Um, They said shut down and churches did. And most of them probably opened up relatively quickly. But you have some that have still lingered on not having service, for example. 
And they've agreed to stop preaching the gospel. They're going to say that, well, we're maybe we're still preaching online. Okay, let's finesse that. They have agreed to stop meeting together as the scripture mandates and the scripture wants us to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I don't think we're in, there's, I don't think there's any state right now that is stopping churches from meeting in person. Is there? No, I don't, I don't think, I don't think from meeting, I don't think right, from so. meeting. Right yeah. Now. And so, but, in, and we certainly know that in most states now churches are free to meet, which means that when a church decides they're, they're capitulating to their own desires at this point, um, because they are now choosing, it's actually a worse place to find yourself. They are now choosing to put greater restrictions on themselves than even the government under the guise of protecting a neighbor or something. There's always some some nice thing put on there. But the debate we had, and this is where this question is probably born from, is early on in the COVID uh, situation, churches were told to close. And the debate became, okay, Romans 13 or something like that says we have to obey the rulers, mm-hmm. so we have to close. Mm-hmm. And then it just became... Then it became the question of mask mandates and everything else, and people became really rather entrenched. So any way we answer this, people are going to be thinking COVID regulations. Um, but there is going to be if 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 the church prohibited the church, excuse me, if the state prohibited the church from gathering, you you of course would disobey that. The early church did disobey that. They met in catacombs. They met in homes. They first for fear of the Jews, then for fear of the Romans. Okay, so there are two authorities there. There are governing both religious and secular authorities telling you you can't meet, and then you do. So, I think why, why couldn't we all agree on that? Yeah, but apparently we weren't able to. Yeah. Well, Adam, you kind of when you were talking earlier about you know the this idea of viewing the government as father. Yeah. Um, of course, that made me think of the large catechism mm-hmm. where Luther actually explicitly connects government to fatherhood. Yeah. Is that something that you think has colored our perception of obedience? I mean, are we basically following Luther in this or is this just our skewed view of what fatherhood is? I think even, yeah, I think it's a skewed view of fatherhood because I think it, it also presumes that we are sort of like four-year-olds where you know, I don't really need to explain things to them or justify anything. And the problem is that constitutionally, I guess I mean that both the document, but then also sort of the way that our nation's history has structured governance on all levels, we are set up to behave as mature children. That is, even if the government is providing for me or helping me or caring for me by say, you know, not allowing child sacrifice to occur in the United States, which obviously dad's failing in that regard, even if they are providing and and serving in a father-like office, that office functions in a way specific to our republic. And it's, you know, I maintain that, that people that are just blindly obeying government mandates because they have been promulgated are helping to overturn our form of government in the same way that, when you know Congress doesn't bot like lets us go to war somewhere and doesn't bother to actually declare a war, they're helping to overturn our well, form of government as well. It's, it's fair to say. Would you say it's fair to say that we are not obeying the scriptures when we don't behave as good citizens? And by and a good yeah. citizen in America right. would be to understand your government, understand your right, and understand your role as right. a free man right. in America. Yeah. Yeah, right. so by being this kind of servile creature, 
you're actually not fulfilling what the scripture says. You're certainly not loving your neighbor. You're really not honoring your father and mother. Right. And and you're really corrupting Romans 13 because in your role, you are allowing it to become this beast. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and in any society, I mean, if the government said, and this is an example they bring up in the Magdeburg Confession, if the government tells you to prostitute your wife and daughters, do you have to obey because he's at a higher you know, he's higher in the food chain than you. No, you have actual responsibilities. And one of my responsibilities as a Christian American man is to make sure that the government doesn't do whatever it wants. Yeah. It's actually my calling, you know? Right. Your vocation as patriot is an interesting thing. (laughs) Yeah. And it it is a weird way to try to read Romans 13, you know, uh, I mean, the context of, of, you know, the Roman Empire and then trying to one-to-one import that over into America as a form of government doesn't matter, as if the law, the civil law doesn't matter. You know, it, so. Well, and especially know. because Romans 13 presupposes a singular figure as an authority. I mean, you know, that well, but you that's what, but that's what these him. that's what these people are going to. They're going, well, there's right. the governor. Yeah, but he's not meant to be a dictator. No, no. Right. It, by design. I mean, same thing with the president. And really, I mean, same thing with, you could even say the courts and other things like that. That's not really how this is de- is designed. Nobody wanted the courts to exist hardly at all. I mean, you know, it's <laughs> right. like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah. And, and we have to separate, I think, civil disobedience from like uh, 1960s style stuff too. Um, because some of the things they were fighting for yeah. are not things I would say we should be contending for. Yeah, and, and we're we can not confuse funded by the CIA. Too. So right, yeah. and as far as they know, I mean, we don't we don't ask for Gibbs. Okay, we, listen, we don't ask for Gibbs, but that does not mean we have a secret backer. You know, we're funded by Peter Thiel. They were funded That's by right. the CIA. The CIA, <laughs> right? All right. Well, uh, let's move on then, because I do want to get to some of these other ones. Um, there is a question about critical theory and it being uh, taught at Christian grade schools and colleges, yeah. and those who hold offices with the educational faculty, things like that. Um, how can you contend against critical theory? I'm not trying to push this question off, but I do want to say, go listen to our critical theory episode. And one of the best things that you can do is to not support institutions that are teaching this right? and to be vocal about what is being taught and to document what's being taught. Let us see the syllabi, Uh, you know, uh, record the lectures and, and let people know. And especially in Christian institutions, you know, just let it, let it be known. Um, Anything to add to, to that? I would, I mean, I would just say that critical theory is kind of a euphemism. I mean, it's simply, it's simply anti-white. And so it's anti the letter to the Galatians, right? You could think of critical race theory as simply Judaizing in that if you are white, you need to become something, something else ethnically. Yeah. And and the same thing with uh, any, any, you know, middle qualifier you want to put in between critical and theory, right? It's anti-male. It's really any anti-gene distinction. And at the end of the day, it's anti-Christ. Yeah. You have to say that anything that causes that much division. Now people will get mad at that and say, oh, you don't really understand it. Well, anything that demonizes the entire white race, you know, as, as virtually irredeemable unless they allow themselves to be tortured is 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 uh, anti-scriptural. Yeah. So there you go. I don't even know why this is a debate, but here we are. Um, <laughs> are arranged marriages something that Lutherans could reasonably be considered for their children? Depends on how much cattle you have. Really? Yeah, it sure does. Uh, what what kind of dowry we're getting here? Uh, the, remember, dating dating culture is new and probably won't net you the best thing in the world, especially with all the apps and everything now. 
So any of you guys with daughters want to comment? <laughs> yeah. I, I think I, I... It I don't depends. Know. I, it's it's I just mean, like libertarianism. It only works in a high trust society. Yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah, okay. That that's good. that makes me feel better, but not that's a great. lot better. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, dating. Yes, dating. Sure, dating. Dating is literally gay in its origins. Thinking of uh, you know human relationships. I'm, I'm just being honest. Um, uh, but you know, courting was a thing. Like you know, you you knew who he was. You know, this kind of thing that's not so There's bad. There's a bundling board involved at times. I, I, I don't support I think that was always a bad idea, but I know it's trad, but there were some trad bad <laughs> There's ideas. There's some trad things that aren't always the yeah, best. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I don't know. You know, this is where, this is where, this is where I'm getting, I'm getting squeamish with the tradness. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to go to another trad question that I'm not, that I don't think we should be squeamish about. Um, head coverings. Uh, it's a good topic of discussion. Uh, bi- the biblical principle that women should cover their heads. Yeah. Who wants to tackle that one? Am I going to tackle that one? I think Paul already did. Uh, yeah, Paul did. Here's <laughs> the thing, guys. I want to be, listen. Okay. I just, this is how I'm going to answer this. Adam is already on record as being uh, a Mennonite. So we know where he stands. But by virtue of being a Pennsylvanian German, Paul roots headship and head coverings uh, in creation. Uh, He mentions to cover head because of the angels throughout this whole discussion on why women should keep their heads covered. He ends with basically saying, um, but if there be any dissensions, the churches of God, you know, have, have no such custom. And he's not saying that we have no such customs about head coverings because he's been talking about that for the last several verses. He's saying we have no custom of dissensions. That's the only right way to read that. Um, he wouldn't go on and on about a big point and then go, but if you don't like it, well, we don't have any custom. Uh, so it, <laughs> it's, there is something more, you know, going on there in my opinion. It was the tradition well up into the fifties, Catholic Protestant churches, women at least wore a hat in church. And that is where, uh, head coverings, you know, that kind of evolved into that. And so at the very least in the church services, the ancient Christian custom going all the way up into modern times has been, uh, to keep your head covered. And uh, and people don't like that, but that it's it's historically true. And so obviously much more discussion is needed on those actual verses. But uh, that is sort of the uh, that's sort of the uh, Cliff's Notes version of of the argument for head covering. And, uh, you know, shoot us a message if you want any uh, advice on where to buy them. So But, you know, it's it's something, though, don't don't like g- come into your house and see your wife and throw a bag over her head or something like that or throw a doily on her head and, and bobby <laughs> pin it in. Unless yeah. that's the way your households ran. I, I do think it's something that you need to be, especially in this day and age, sober minded about and careful when you're discussing. But at the same time, there is a rich tradition and a biblical tradition of head covering um, that is hard to ignore if we're being fair. I think and I, Yeah. Go ahead, Aaron. Yeah, we're coming out of a period where people, you know, would in many situations wouldn't want someone to come to church without a face covering. But oh, you know, that's good. Yeah. Would go into orbit if you, you know, actually went after Had the covering a... that is prescribed in the Bible. Yeah, hot take. I like it. Very well said. Very good. Okay, where are we at here? Um, 
Okay, there's a couple, like I said, we won't be able to uh, to do. There's a good there's a good discussion on liturgical movement and legalism. We'll actually come back to that. We'll try to save that for another conclave or even its own episode. Uh, we talked a little bit about this in, in the Adiaphora episode and talked a lot about government in that episode as well. Um, here is, um, okay, I think we've got enough time to get through a couple more. So how do we, and so the question is, is worded like this. Some congregants don't like man-made rules, even if they're done in decency and order for the sake of pointing to Christ. So I'm going to try and reword this question a little bit and, Listener, if, if if I don't hit it right, you can let us know in WordFitly posting. But laudable customs, customs that might not be um, demanded by the Bible, but have been handed down to us and are very good. How can we convince or how can we show rather our members that such customs are for their benefit? I think I mean, it's it's very similar to what you just said about head coverings. That is, you realize something is right or something is better or something is good. But you also have to understand something we've talked about before, which is the distinction between tradition and history. And if you understand how untraditional a lot of very good, indubitably historically Lutheran things are out there and you want to introduce them, you have to go about it without uh, harshness or absurdity in how you introduce them. And that's going to vary by what it is that you're trying to introduce and you know, the people affected or who cares about this, maybe nobody cares about this. And you were told everyone would. But um, I think understanding that, you know, you're not there to put every single duck in a row. But as you put more things in order, um, and bring, you know, helpful ceremonies in or whatever it is you're trying to introduce, that uh, you understand and communicate that these are for the benefit of the people. And if it's, if it is aggressively weird, it might be wonderful to do you just, you're just never going to do it or you're not going to do it for 10 years. And so I think the, the, the virtue here is not about knowledge of customs, which you can grow in, but about having patience as you introduce things. And that doesn't mean waiting 15 years to do something you should have done right away, but it just means understanding that patience is really the teacher's virtue. You have to be patient with people. And a pastor is scripturally also a teacher. So well, and especially recognizing the difference between those things which must be changed mm-hmm. immediately kind of a thing. Right. And those things which, as you say, are laudable and are good, but we could, I mean, you can do without them, at yeah. least for a time being, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. And and conceptually, a lot of people can't tell the difference between what is traditional for them and man-made. They have no... Right. A capacity to distinguish between those things. So conceptually, I would actually start back with, okay, how does Jesus distinguish between doctrine versus commandments of men? And then they can begin to plug their own stuff, or you can over time, the stuff that they actually think is normal and obvious, also into commandments of men. So then they can begin to evaluate these things with less, you know, let's say emotional fervor. Yeah. Very good. Well, all right, guys, uh, we're going to go just a little bit into overtime here because I do want to tackle this last question and we can do it rather briefly. What do you think uh, is the biggest challenge facing the LCMS that no one is talking about today? Including word fitly or just in general? (laughs) 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 That's it. That's the end. Yeah. Troubler (laughs) of Israel. You are. The problem with it is everybody is talking about something everywhere. So that's it's hard to find one that no one is talking about. 
I think that, you know, maybe one of the biggies is even though we talk about family a lot, we talk about that just as sort of this yeah. ill-defined concept. We don't talk about the order within the family, what yeah. that actually means. Yeah. Um, we talk about home catechesis, but we don't really talk about what that means as far as what it means to be a father teaching and what a biblically ordered household really looks like. And we don't demand that from from anyone, from leaders to to followers. And and so there there is a lot of conflict in families because of that. That might be one that we're not talking about. You know, I, I mean I suppose you could say supply chain issues or something like that. Yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. <laughs> but um what what do you guys think? Anything demographically we do talk about lack of kids, but the thing that I think about demographically which would affect how our institutions function, how synod politics functions, how lots of things function, is the fact that boomers are the largest single, you know, white demographic in the United States and the LCMS is like whatever, 95 plus percent white. So as boomers not just retire from being pastors, but just are not alive anymore in the next, let's say, 20, 25 years, that drastically changes just how things work. Yeah, and that that's a big one. You know, we talk about the coming clergy shortage. I don't think we're being realistic about that. I think that what we're seeing is guys who are not going to retire, who are either going to have be living in a parsonage for their whole career, so they have no equity built up, so they can't, so they're going to keep going on. There are going to be guys who will retire, quote unquote, and then go on to serve uh, for very low pay. Mm -hmm. So I think if there is a great shortage, it's actually much further off. It's going to be after the death of a certain generation mm. because many, many more of them will continue working. And then that will, that will be kind of a stopgap. There won't be a need for um, younger clergymen to come in. And by that time, there might not be a need for, or a perceived need, you know, let's be clear here of the churches to actually pay full-time salary and benefits. Right. So I think we're, we're not going to see that clergy shortage happen in the real short term. And then we might actually see a reorganization or a reevaluation of what people want in a pastor. And, and so that's something I don't think that we're really prepared for institutionally or, you know, even at the local level. So anything else guys? All right. Well, this has been a word fitly spoken, the 150th episode extravaganza. See, we could have made it a clip show. We could have just had, you know, hot sound bites from the last 150 episodes, but we did it all new and all fresh for you, the Word Fitly listener. So we thank you for listening. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like me, heard, and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com, slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi, Aaron Uphoff, Adam Koontz, and previously with David Apple. God love you and God bless.